0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold The Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gundog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T-Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force-free gundog training, The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazons everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force-free gundog training, and I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train- your gun dog without force or fear motivate and educate hold the line is here prevention repetition generalization motivation hold the line oh yeah hello everybody welcome back to another episode of hold the line so today I wanted to talk about something which I am kind of seeing happening a little bit on social media. I mean it's not actually happening on on social media because it involves dog training but it's something that people are putting up videos of that I'm seeing on social media. So this involves The subject of introducing puppies to birds. And I think it's specifically relevant to the HBR breeds, the pointing breeds, versatile dogs. They go by many different names, these dogs, depending on where you live. So it's going to be relevant to those guys. It's probably also relevant to Spaniels as well, to be honest. Although I think that perhaps It happens less with Spaniels or maybe you just don't see the videos of it. But yes, let's just talk about this as a subject. I mean, it is relevant also to retrievers because I have seen videos of dogs in North America being introduced, you know, little puppies being introduced to birds, live birds in North America too. So I want to talk about this as a subject and kind of dive down deep into it and think about it a little bit. So the first thing that I want to say is that there are cultural differences between what is done, as it were. So that means that whilst wherever you live, you might assume that everybody does what you do, that that it's sort of generally accepted that best practice or the right way to do stuff is what people around you are doing. That's not necessarily the case, because people do different things in different places. So that is why it's important to try and look beyond your own Country, even and really kind of think about these subjects, these training subjects, in terms of learning theory and in terms of what you hope to achieve with your dog and how you can best achieve that rather than just doing what everybody else is doing around you. So, um, let's talk about those little differences a little bit. So, in the UK, it's not very common for people to introduce young puppies to birds. So I just can't think of anybody actually who live birds. It's not cold game, but live birds. I can't really think of anyone who has who does that. So, really, to generalise the kind of approach which is taken in the UK to these things is that dogs are trained to um, respond to our cues and even in traditional training to our commands. And, you know, all of that is proofed and trained and gradually the dog is exposed to more and more exciting stuff, as it were, as the dog shows that they're capable of responding to the handler in those conditions. So it would not be seen to be a good thing to kind of blow a puppy's mind with exposure to birds. That's the first thing to say. And that is not a force free thing at all. That is across the board, whatever type of gun dog you're talking about, whether you're talking about retrievers, spaniels, HBRs, and it's talking about all kinds of trainers, including traditional trainers. If you sort of, you know, canvassed them all on a little pole, that's probably, you know, what would come out. It would be a very rare trainer who thinks it's a great idea to let little pups chase birds or even catch birds. That would be um not common. So that's the first thing to say. And the other thing to say is that I know that in North America things are very different, and you know I often see even breeders uh, with pups with live birds encouraging puppies to point live birds to chase live birds to catch live birds, to pick them up, and then I see new puppy owners where they're sort of you know eight, nine ten eleven twelve we call puppies, letting their pups point birds, chase birds, catch birds um, and you know this kind of just being. Something which is routinely considered and unthinkingly actually considered to be a good thing. So that was what I want to talk a little bit about. So the first thing we have to talk about is how does this usually work? So if we were a traditional trainer and let's just assume that that means we're going to use an e-collar. So we're talking about a North American traditional trainer who's going to use an e-collar to quote unquote break their dog at a certain point in the dog's training. So the attitude there is to really develop loads and loads of drive and don't want to use that word drive because it's debated what it is but let's just put it in quotation marks um you know interest in birds birds as being reinforcing and the desire to find birds being this overwhelming irresistible you know bust through anything kind of urge that the dog has so it's almost like the the idea of teaching the dog to focus on the handler teaching the dog that the handler is, is, is relevant, just isn't part of the training process, particularly early on. And then when we get to the point where the dog is broken, quote unquote, with an e-collar, it's just that we have, well, we don't have, but they have a device which can overcome that intense drive. So the e-collar, obviously it can be dialed up and down and there is a level that each dog will experience and respond to. So no matter how low or high that is, and each dog decides what is aversive. So whilst some people claim that, you know, it's just a little tickle and you may put it on and you may find that it's a little tickle, but if that little tickle is strong enough to overcome a dog, which is incredibly driven to find game and hunt, and, you know, then we have to consider that for that dog, it must be a pretty powerful aversive, that little tickle. Because if it weren't a powerful aversive, it wouldn't function. It wouldn't operate. The dog would just ignore it. So it's the dog that decides how strong an aversive it is. Anyway, I sort of digress a little bit there. So what I'm trying to say with all of this, and by the way, this is not me sort of hating on e-collar training, because that's not my approach, by the way, when it comes to talking about gun dog training. I tend to just. Do the thing that I like to do, train the way that I like to train. And I tend not to get involved in conversations about balance training or e-collars or punishment-based training or anything like that. But in this particular instance, I think it's relevant because it's relevant to force-free training because it has an impact on what we do with puppies and birds. And the reason for that is that we are not, as force-free trainers, gonna have an e-collar, which we're gonna pull out when the dog gets to a designated stage of training and put it on the dog. Or, you know, we're not gonna be running the dog With that on at any point, so we're not going to have this aversive, which we can put on the dog's neck and which is going to we're going to be able to apply remotely from many hundreds of yards away to the dog where necessary. So we don't have that. We don't have that in our toolkit, and it's one of the one of my sort of uh, bugbears and frustrations is that force-free training does not have an equivalent. We don't have a device which can remote remotely deliver a positive reinforcer from a hundred yards away, wherever the dog is, the dog not needing to have to be at a treat dispenser or in a particular place or on a platform or on a specific mat, wherever the dog is, they can just get this delivered to them. You know, we don't have a collar which kind of rolls a little treat around it and delivers it right in front of the dog's nose for the dog to eat out of this. (laughs) So we don't have this, this sort of force free equivalent and that makes training difficult. Also, it means that we have to rely on prevention a lot more. We have to rely on being able to physically stop the dog from doing the things we don't want them to do. In order to do that, we have to, for a longer period of time, be closer to the dog, because we have to be able to use long lines, which in North America are called check cords, a little bit longer so that we can stop the dog from being able to perform the unwanted behaviours and really get things reliable up close before we start to move away and see that they are reliable also from increasing distances. So everything has to be done It's a completely different approach to training is the thing that I'm trying to say. And you can't start out a puppy with the same approach that someone who's going to stick an e-collar on later is starting out a puppy with. I think that this is really important because I think that force-free trainers see this, you know, getting puppies started thing. And of course, it's force-free. It's fun. No one's doing anything aversive to the puppy. The puppy's having a blast. They're running around, they're chasing birds, they're pointing, they're catching birds. It's all fun. There's no punishment. There's no aversives involved in that process at all. And so it's easy for people who want to train their puppies using force-free methods to look at this and think, well, wow, there's nothing wrong with this. This is force-free. So therefore, this stage of training has to be okay. we have to be able to go through these steps as well. And it's later on that we'll diverge. But the point is that it's not really possible to do that. that. You need a completely different approach from the beginning. You can't just start things out the same way that people who are going to later use e-collars start things out. Because what you're doing is you're, you're creating this massive um, love of birds, drive, interest in birds as a reinforcer, and you're not building any other reinforcer in to uh, be stronger than that, to compete with that, to be able to be used alongside that. And so it's going to, be, it's going to make things really hard for you later on and when, when you try and use force-free methods to get that dog steady. So that's the first thing that I want to say. The only thing I want to say is that it then occurred to me that we have touched on the subject a couple of times before when I've interviewed people. And so I just want to kind of go back and pull out the relevant sections of those interviews. So I remember I talked about this with Leanne Smith and with Jane Arden in our our discussions. So, I went back and I pulled out the relevant bits of those conversations. So I'm just going to play them here because I think if we sort of take them out of those discussions and play them side by side in this context and thinking about the subject that hopefully we're going to start to make some progress when it comes to thinking about things differently. So this is what Jane said back in episode 39 of this podcast when I interviewed her. And she's talking about one of her dogs and their first sort of experience with game and the way that it completely blew the dog's mind. So this is what she had to say about that.
1: I took her on a uh, live game training day. Um, And she went up. The only way I can describe it is she went up about 15 gears. Um, awakened an instinct lost all control lost all focus and um, she was a beast she um i remember her diving in the stream uh, chasing a bird um scrambling through the brambles ran through an electric fence picked this shot bird up and back through the electric fence straight back in the water and um, she was just this little monster i took her just to back to our local park and she wouldn't even look at me She was just screaming to be off the lead. I was going on training days. It was two hours before I could get any connection off her. The environment completely over aroused her. When we'd finished the training day, I said to Helen, will you come and have a look at this? And we actually set the bolting rabbit up on the, connected it to the wall in the training centre. And I released the bolting rabbit and Pickles was screaming on the end of the lead um like just screaming and Helen said take her out into reception so we took her out into reception we closed the doors to the training area and Helen said take a lead off I took a lead off and she was just like flinging herself at the door and still screaming
0: so with Jane there we've got a young dog who hadn't had much experience with game before if any and went on a live game training day so it was quite an intense experience very very exciting dog way over threshold and made a huge impression on the dog to the point that the dog found it really difficult to concentrate in the presence of anything resembling game after that. So let's turn to Leanne and her experience as well with one of her first dogs that she worked. So let's see what Leanne has to say. And by the way, if you want to revisit this recording in its entirety, you can find it in episode nine of the interview with Leanne.
2: Ended up with Indy, my Gemma Wirehead pointer who was um very extreme <laughs> version of quite an interesting breed. So um, for the first 18 months, I kind of struggled with her, did everything that you should do. You know, oh, you just do this. And uh, I did all of those things. And um, she still couldn't concentrate. And she was still sort of so hunt driven, such a high hunt drive. She was just incredible. Um, 16 weeks, she went off chasing beer and um, was for away, away for about 10 minutes. And at that age, it's just like, mm, what have I got here? Um, also, she had a lot of um, uns- unsupervised free ranging. Um, in a, a friend used to look after her for me, which was very kind of her because I had to work. I had a proper job as well as doing my dog training, which meant that I needed somebody to look after Indy two days a week for me during the day. And um, my friend had a lovely gar- has got sort of three acres of garden, which is fantastic. Um, she's got border collies, so it's not a problem. Whereas I didn't know it would be a problem to let her unsupervised out in three acres of lovely outside space, <laughs> where she learnt to, she learnt self employed hunting. So that so self employed hunting combined with I didn't get that focus on to I didn't have that ultimate reward for her it meant that there was always going to be a point where she went you know i'll just go and do this because it's better
0: okay folks it's time for a whistle pause a whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor but i don't have a sponsor so instead i'm going to play you a tune on my trusty acme 212 Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force-Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. So again here with Liam, we've got a young dog, which is at the age of learning what is reinforcing and the Ann's saying there that the dog was given an opportunity to learn that hunting for whatever she could find in her environment by herself, also hunting kind of self hunting was the most reinforcing thing for that dog. And by the time Liam realized that she should really work on developing an alternative reinforcer, it sounds like her dog was not a little puppy anymore. And it's a bit harder sometimes to teach older dogs, I believe, to accept an alternative reinforcer or to enjoy an alternative reinforcer. I think part of what we're doing with a puppy is not just learning what the puppy innately finds to be reinforcing. We're not just sort of approaching the puppy with a sort of, who are you, puppy? And what, what are you bringing to the table? But we're also able to influence what the puppy is going to grow up to find reinforcing and motivating and enjoyable. So we are not only sort of passively observing what the puppy finds to be reinforcing, but we, we can actively shape what the puppy finds to be reinforcing. And it's most easy to do this with little puppies and young dogs before they've been exposed to game. So let's just kind of reflect a little bit on what both Jane and Leanne did with their dogs and their subsequent dogs to try to prevent this issue from developing. So first, we've got Jane talking about her next dog, Stig, and what she did with him to try to prevent the same thing from developing. And her approach was always to keep him in the frame of mind where he was quote unquote operant, where he's able to respond to her cues and where he's connected to her and very careful not to blow his mind or overwhelm him too much with exciting games. So here's Jane talking about that.
1: We did a lot of connection stuff very, very early on. What I did with Stig was I did a lot of managing his arousal levels and keeping him cool and calm and settled. So the first time we went on a shoot, I took him on Beater's Day, and I just said I'll I'll just bring one of my young dogs with me. So what I actually did with him was we just did heel work, and we hunted behind the beating line, so all the birds had gone, had been moved on. So we just did some connection stuff behind the beating line in the wood, and then what we did was um, I just worked on settle between drives, Um, and he was fantastic. So he was a dog that you know you could take on a shoot, and he was absolutely. You know, just lovely because he managed his arousal so well. We had a lot of foundation
0: control that we were able to maintain as we increased arousal. So that's Jane talking about setting up the environments that her dog is successful and not letting that dog's first experience with game be an experience where he lost his mind and found it so incredibly exciting. He was unable to respond as with the previous dog that she talked about. So there she's very careful to keep the environment Not so exciting that the dog's not able to respond to her. So really thinking about the situation that she puts the dog into, what's going on, what what would be too stimulating? How can she choose um, a location and a time at the shoot to begin to introduce her dog to the environment and to the hunting and to the tasks that can be required of him, but in such a way that it's not going to be just wow to him to the point that he can't respond to her anymore. So let's have a little look now at how she did deal with the bolting rabbit and with her first dog that found that to be so exciting.
1: Really, we, I started with just the bolting rabbit being on the floor. And we um, we just worked on capturing auto sets um, and just control around that. So for me, it was very much about breaking criteria down. So the dog was successful. So first, it was could she, you know, control her impulse to want to go and get it, and also learn to have a different reward because that was one of the keys is learning that the the, the you know, the thing that you find isn't always the thing that you you can't always get it. So it's very much, it was very much about her learning to, that she cannot have that, but she was going to have different rewards instead.
0: So we're back again to this idea of an alternative reinforcer and the importance of developing that idea for the dog, the idea that you're not going to have this thing that you want, but there is this other thing which you really think is fantastic, which you are going to have instead. And both Jane and Leanne agree with the importance of developing this when the dog is young. So here's Jane just to continue on that subject.
1: If we think about a gun dog working in the field, there's never any reason why we would want them to chase something without our permission. Um, so, And I always think that first learning is the strongest. So for me, I think if you've got a young dog, if the dog's first learning is something moves and you stop, And then that kind of builds some real solid foundations, I think helping them learn to cope with the fact that they they flush, they stop and they don't get the thing and that they get an alternative and actually building a mindset where there's value in the alternative. Um so for me, um yes, absolutely with the flirt pole. So for me on the on the most occasions the dog would have um an alternative reward and becomes just a normal part an acceptable part of their life. So one of the things I would never expect is a young, and inexperienced dog who doesn't have good impulse control to be able to do a sit stay after it's just flushed something. Um so I would give them a movement reinforcer because I know that their body, their their body's probably just prepared itself for action on the flush. Um so asking a young and experienced dog to then do stillness when, you know, its muscles are ready for action and everything about the dog is ready for action. So I'll give them an action reinforcer. I think when you pair stillness with movement, um, it's just using pre-max. So st- the stillness part becomes highly reinforcing because it's just a part of the game. Um, so I like to pair stillness with movement to, to kind of build up that um, kind of those those sequences because that is kind of part of their the
0: job that they do so leanne actually traced back some of the problems that she was having with her wirehead pointer back to not having developed that play when she was a puppy so not having to not having got her addicted to some toy ball tug flirt pole um whichever whichever worked for her and not realizing why that was important so here's leanne just talking a bit more about that
2: now, because i not managed to get a very good play drive with Indy, um, I never got to the point where she was 100% successful. I didn't know that I needed to work so hard on getting the, the toy play. Um, so, I mean, I, I tried reasonably hard because I knew it was kind of important. But um, if I knew then what I know now, I would have done things very differently. With a puppy, you have to get um almost an addiction to some form of play reward now uh, for my boys uh, both of them happily are addicted to playing ball with me um eric will also tug quite enthusiastically um Ragnar's not as enthusiastic about tugging but he's so addicted to his ball play that it's of no it doesn't really matter um so we have to have some sort of exciting interactive game that the dog basically will swap anything for food i look at as information so you can give a lot of feedback with food very quickly um but it's not terribly exciting and when you've got the dog's got a choice between um chasing that bird or coming back for a treat uh the bird's going to win um whereas if they've got a choice between chase that bird or chase that ball. if you've created enough of an addiction, the dog will come back for the ball. Um, So it's one of those things that I try and teach an addiction with an off switch. So that's kind of what we're getting them to do is don't chase that, chase this. Um, and so the flick of that, they don't have to change drives. They just have to change their focus of that drive. I spend a huge amount of time with my puppies building this uh, on, on and off switch to the, to the, to the ultimate reward. Um, and then from very early on, I expose them to um, game. Uh, I use birds down the park. Anything that they flush, immediately I will then tell them ready and the ball comes out. So from very small puppies, they learn as soon as they flush something, there's going to be a ball from me or whatever game suits your dog, particular dog. So the reason that I couldn't do as much as I wanted to with Indy was I never got that with her as a puppy. Um, And so I was always trying to play catch up and I could get her to play in certain circumstances but mm, as soon as there was something more interesting, she would kind of stop playing and go off and do that. So that really has been coming out of the back of that where I had so much trouble about, you know, couldn't really let her off the lead and, uh, in certain places and all of that sort of stuff. Meant that I, That has been a major focus for the subsequent dogs. So I've never really had that problem since then. And you've always got to balance the rewards that the dog is expecting from you uh, with the rewards that they're expecting from the environment and if they if you can see that their expectation from the environment is more than from you you need to get out there really quickly because you're going to lose control <laughs> very soon is the dog connected if i asked them to do something would they be able to respond to cue um if they can't then i need i need to get out there really quickly
0: so it seems that we can really pull some things out here and one of the reasons that i wanted to do this to kind of Pull out these threads in the interviews that I did with Jane and with Leanne is because I think that there's some really important stuff here and it can sometimes get buried in lots of other useful stuff which we talk about in the interviews. And I just didn't want that to happen. I wanted to kind of pull it out and highlight it as it were. So I think looking back at the points that we've been covering here, the first thing to say is that. A young dog is learning what is reinforcing. So they're learning what is the good stuff in life. And is it birds or game? Is it other dogs? Is it your reinforcers, like your your toys or your food? What is it that the dog values? And we're not just sort of passively observing this, we're actively shaping this. By shaping, I don't mean you know, as in clicker training, shaping, obviously we're not doing that. I just mean we're fashioning this. We are we are helping the puppy develop in this specific way. And we're developing alternative reinforcers when we do this, reinforcers that we can use in the future in the field around game. Now you might be wondering, but what about game? Doesn't the dog have to find game reinforcing? After all, it's a gun dog and shouldn't we be trying to Make it like game, as it were, or find game reinforcing. Now, the answer to that is that most well bred gun dogs do not need any help finding game to be reinforcing. That when they are introduced to game, whenever that is, their instincts will switch on, and you better hope that you've got your alternative reinforcers ready and primed for action. So, don't worry too much about developing an interesting game, it's there genetically. So we are trying to ensure that by the time we take the dog into the field and introduce them to game in some way that we have before that really strongly conditioned these alternative reinforcers. There's stuff that we have that we know the dog is going to really value. So that enables us to have a way to reinforce the dog's responses in the presence of game. Without using the game itself as a reinforcer, because that is not always practical or possible, especially when you're training and you're in the beginning stages of training. So this is why it worries me when people are introducing baby puppies to game and birds and letting them chase and catch the birds, because a sort of 9, 10, 11, 12 week old puppy just isn't going to have it's just not had enough time to learn about these alternative reinforcers that you have on offer or available, that the the tuggy, the tennis ball, whatever it is that you are developing an interest in for your dog, it's just not gonna it's not gonna be long enough. It's not gonna be enough time for you to have developed that interest sufficiently with a pup that young. So what you're really doing instead is developing a massive interest in game and birds. And that is going to supersede the interest that the dog's going to develop in your reinforcer your alternative reinforcer and it's difficult to come back from this it's difficult in the future to be like oh whoops I forgot to condition this alternative reinforcer let's just do it now so you you heard Leanne talking about that a bit it was really hard because she'd missed that in puppyhood with her dog to be able to go back and do that later on in adulthood um, so that is the first thing that I think we can say about about all of this the other thing to say is The importance of working with the dog around game in a way that the dog is able to be in a thinking mind, as it were, be in a kind of operant cognitive state where the dog's able to think about your cues and respond to them and be operant, as it were, and not just be wowed and have their mind blown by the game. So they just can't focus or concentrate on you. So... It's important to be keeping an eye on the dog's arousal levels and working with those like Jane talked about so that you kind of making sure that the dog doesn't go over threshold in any of your training. And that if you see signs of that happening, that you take action to reduce that arousal level, whatever that might be, whether it's moving further away from the game, whether it's scattering some treats on the floor and doing some quiet sniffing activities whether it's putting the dog back in the car for half an hour to sort of have time to chill out and calm down, whatever it is, or even back on the lead if the car's not available. So work with the dog under threshold, as it were. So now it's kind of point two. Point three is kind of this idea of pairing stillness and movement. So for both spaniels and hbrs or versatile dogs there are moments when the dog is still and then there are moments when there is a lot of activity or action so particularly if you want to flush so i think this idea of pairing stillness and movement that jane talked about is really helpful because the two things get connected together if you're still then you get to move and so it it kind of becomes a chain which reinforces itself so that's a really important thing to be thinking about too. And also this idea of movement being the thing that the dog wants. So the dog wants to move. They sort of probably want to chase and they want to chase something. And this idea that Leanne talked about just providing A substitute thing for the dog to chase. So instead of chasing the game, they're going to chase the thing that you've provided, whether it's a tennis ball, whether it's a flirt pole, whether it's a tuggy, whatever it is, it's going to be something else the dog gets to chase. So they still get an outlet for this activity, this thing that they want to do. It's just not exercised on the object that it perhaps might have otherwise been exercised on. So we are providing an alternative reinforcer, an alternative object for this. But the movement and the action and the type of behavior that it is, is similar to the behavior that would have been carried out on the game itself. So that is why it works as such a useful substitute and why the dogs are usually happy to switch one for the other, particularly if you've started introducing your alternative reinforcer with a young puppy. So I think those are the main things that come out of these kind of um, discussions that we had on the subject. And I hope this sort of waffle has been useful to some degree. Now, I do want to say just a little plug for my course, Steady, which is the last course that I've made so far, which is available on my website, forcefreegundog.com, because we cover all of this stuff. We cover building interest in your tug toy and your flirt pole, and we cover using that object or item to practice the stillness and movement and the the sort of switch between stillness and movement we cover how to use this in a way that we gradually are increasing the criteria and that we want the dog to be able to be steady under. And eventually we end up not just practicing the behaviors we want, using the flirt pole as the thing that the dog is under control around, but eventually we'll be able to take that out to the field around game because in doing all of this, we've also built this into a really powerful reinforcer that then we can take out with us and use in the presence of game. So that's kind of What it's doing as well. So if you do want a kind of structured course, which is going to help you through all of this, then I highly recommend you check out my course steady on my website, forcefreegundog.com. So I also just want to thank again, Jane and Leanne for their interviews that they did earlier, because it's been really helpful to kind of pull out these threads from them. And also just to reiterate that if you want to listen to the interviews in full, you can hear Jane's in episode 39 and you can hear Leanne's in episode nine. So it's been super great to talk to you all again and I am going to say goodbye for now and I will be back soon.